Well, friends, we gather this weekend in a most unexpected manner, and yet at the same time, according to plan, under the sway of our good and sovereign God, who we can trust. The psalmist says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So we continue on with the preaching of the word right into our next scheduled passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. I'm assuming you've already read it. So remember, the author identifies himself as the preacher, and he is on a quest. He says in chapter 1, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And he wants a full accounting of the world to know the entire scheme of things, the all-encompassing plan of the universe. What is the meaning of life? And he admits right from the beginning, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In fact, he, he calls it a striving after wind. We find that wisdom is advantageous and worth pursuing, uh, but you have to recognize its limits. Wisdom does not solve all of life's riddles. It provides no guarantees. And the fallen world we live in, in this life under the sun, righteousness will always be mixed with wickedness. Last week, we saw the preacher grappling with the sovereignty of God and the reality of suffering. He offered us wisdom as we face the day of adversity. There was a more outward look on the happenings of life. In our passage today, there's more of an inward look. He examines our inner character and our relationships with other people. All of us with hearts that are tainted by sin. But the wise don't despair. We don't demand more from life than we should. We fear God. We leave it to God to make sense of it all. So we'll walk with the preacher down the path of pondering the meaning of life, and we'll see what he's found and what he's not found. So we'll look at, number one, the perplexities of life. Verse 15. Secondly, the boundaries of wisdom. That's verses 16 through 18, and then finally, the reality of sin, verses 19 through 29. So first, the perplexities of life. If you think back for a moment on the ground Nick covered last week, God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we can't look around the corner to see uh, what's coming. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. It's already been named by God. You know, if we consider this very weekend and the circumstances we find ourselves in, uh, none of us knew that uh, we would not be meeting here this Sunday. We look back just seven days prior. Uh, None of us knows what the full impact of this virus will be. And so the preacher gives us a bit of counsel to guide us on life's unexpected journey. If you first look back at verse 12, we find a proverb. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Generally speaking, this is how life tends to work out. You think of Proverbs chapter 3, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Long life is in her right hand. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And yet here in verse 15, the preacher says, I've seen everything. I've seen it all. I've seen a righteous man perish in his righteousness, but a wicked man prolongs his life in his evil doing. 
So he's drawing out one of the great paradoxes of life. Why do the good suffer and die? But the wicked seem to live on in ease. You might think of Psalm 73. Asaph says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And you've got to read the rest of the psalm to figure out how he resolves this. But I wanted to point out that Asaph and the preacher have both noticed the same thing. And we've seen it too in this life under the sun. Life is unpredictable. Sometimes life is utterly puzzling. We go through things that leave us paralyzed with grief and haunted with questions. Danielle had a good friend that she saw every week at our homeschool program my my kids are a part of. And a year ago this month, uh, she was on, her friend was on a field trip with her youngest son. And she was not feeling well. And she died a few hours later. She was only 50 years old. She was a godly woman, a former missionary, highly educated, fluent in Spanish. Uh, She helped to serve Hispanic churches throughout the Southeast United States alongside her husband. Uh, This was an important and desperately needed ministry. But she's gone, leaving three boys. What are we to make of this when there are murderers right now who have never been caught living out their lives in apparent ease, but she's gone. Our friend is gone. When we come to the book of Proverbs, uh, when you compare the book of Proverbs to the book of Ecclesiastes, many people have noted this. Uh, Proverbs focuses on the regularities of life. Ecclesiastes looks at the anomalies. Proverbs tells us what generally tends to happen in life. Ecclesiastes drills down on the exceptions, the mysteries, the injustices of life. So related to that, two thoughts on verse 15. First, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for how God has put the Bible together. God has not furnished us a word that is silent or insufficient to address the real questions and struggles of our lives. And secondly, we should be patient. There are limits to our wisdom. Verse 23, the preacher says, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. God is sovereign over everything. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity. God has made the one as well as the other. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God is the creator. Our duty is to bow before him and trust that he is able to sort it out in the end. One scholar said the preacher presents a sovereign, predetermining God who acts in ways fully calculated, yet not calculable. The Apostle Paul agrees, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
The death of the righteous and the flourishing of the wicked is perplexing. But the preacher will pick this back up again in chapter 8, verse 12. He says very clearly, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. This is what God has seen fit to give us in his word. It will be well with us, but he hasn't spelled out all the answers in between. We will all go to our graves with unanswered questions. Why did this happen? Nevertheless, it will be well with those who fear God. The book of Ecclesiastes then is not pessimistic. I like how one theologian put it. This is uh, Dale Ralph Davis. He says, the preacher is not a cynical old goat who drank Drano for breakfast. He says, that makes a difference in the way you understand Ecclesiastes. I should think it does. The preacher does not withhold the perplexities of life from our gaze. He, he, He puts it out there. But still, there's a discernible path he's taking us on. It's not always easy to spot, but, but it's there. So let's continue on our journey. As we go along, we find that there are boundary lines along this path. There's extremes to avoid. So let's look at the boundaries of wisdom. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Be not overly righteous and be not overly wicked. What is he saying? Now, the wicked side of things is, is uh, more obvious to us. Uh, we know we shouldn't go that way. Uh, but verse 16 is less obvious. Uh, the first thing to notice is that being overly righteous, whatever that means, is incompatible with fearing God. And so is being overly wicked. Now, just look at verse 18. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So he can't be saying... Just sin a little bit. Uh, You know, don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. Just just be a little bad. No, that's that's not what he's saying. Remember how the preacher concludes the book, fear God and keep his commandments. That's, That's the hermeneutical lens through which we should see the entire book. And uh, the second phrase there in verse 16, this helps fill, fill this out a bit for us. He says, and do not make yourself too wise. Uh, In Hebrew, it says something like, do not think oneself to be furnished with wisdom. Proverbs uh, 3, 7 reminded me of that. Do not be wise in your own eyes. So remember the context of chapter 7. Wisdom is commendable, of course, but there are limits. There are boundaries. The attainment of wisdom will not give you final control over your life. This is why wisdom is so attractive. To people, right? Uh, it gives you a sense of control over the world. But the preacher says, consider the work of God. What he has made, who can make straight what he has made crooked? With, so with all of your accumulated wisdom gained through righteous living, you still cannot control the events of your life. Be not overly righteous. No one can obligate God to bless them by their moral and meticulous way of living. You can't put God in your debt. No one can say to God, you owe me. No, the preacher says, why should you destroy yourself? Self-righteousness 
is a false righteousness and it leads to destruction. It leads to judgment. So wisdom, yes, brings light to life, but not a control over life. We do not become gods through wisdom. And if that's your path, you're headed to destruction. You need a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. That's the preacher's prescription for you. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this. So we should meditate long on that line from chapter 5. God is in heaven and you are on earth. We have to know our place in the universe. True wisdom, first and foremost, acknowledges God as the creator and judge of all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. What about the overly wicked? What about the fool? Well, the fool would say, I'm such a sinner. Might as well Might as well sin some more. Might as well just give in. The preacher pleads with him, why should you die before your time? Don't go down that path. It's like being fiercely angry at someone, but then you say, might as well just finish him off. I'm going to kill him. No, don't be a fool. Don't go down that path. The Puritan John Owen said, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Friends, the flesh desires to give birth to a perfect sin. Don't allow the progression. Don't go down that path. Don't be overly wicked. Why should you die before before your time? If you find yourself entangled in sin, reach out to a friend for help. You are among fellow sufferers and sinners. Confess your sins one to another, the Bible says. We will not turn you away here at this church. The preacher says two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And fear God. Fear God. Withhold not your hand from those wise words. You shall come out, the text says. Take hope. Now the wise man understands and embraces these things and he's stronger than ten rulers in a city. And yet the very next proverb Is a contrast. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So the preacher, who is very likely King Solomon himself, having touched on righteousness and wickedness already, he turns his gaze to the reality of human sin, specifically in our relationships with other people. In his quest for a comprehensive understanding of reality, he's found a few things, but But just a few, the totality of it still eludes him. So he'll give us some proverbial wisdom to help us and some things that are are really quite devastating. And they stand as a warning for us. So let's look at that now, the reality of sin. Verse 19 and 20, they go together. Uh, There's a tension here because the wise man and the righteous man should be one and the same. Yes, wisdom gives strength 
to the wise man. But, but no matter how powerful wisdom is, wisdom is never fully achieved in us because no one is righteous. No man is without sin. You almost expect the preacher to cry out again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he would be right. He pretty much says as much in verses 23 through 25. But here he gives us what wisdom he can for our journey. If the sum total of wisdom is unattainable because of our sin, there are still individual findings to help us along the way by the grace of God. And so he gives us one. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. What a good bit of wisdom we have here. In light of the truth of verse 20, we see that humbly acknowledging your sinfulness makes you a compassionate person and a realistic person. You will be criticized. People will say things they shouldn't. Solomon says, don't take them all so seriously. Don't resent others because of unguarded or unkind words they might say about you. People say all kinds of things. And you're no different. You yourself have cursed others. So don't take it to heart. Let it go. Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now the fool, on the other hand, is constantly pouring over every little critique that might reach his ear. He's stewing on it. But those who fear God humbly think to themselves, you know, the truth is, I, I am worse than that. But I've been forgiven. You know, that, that person has judged me, and yet there is a God in, in heaven who has judged me as well, much more thoroughly than, than they have. And he has declared me righteous by faith in his son. I think I'm going to be okay. I can rest in that. So this is good wisdom for relating to others in a fallen world under the sun. Now we come to one of those milestones on our journey through this book. Solomon, in verses 23 through 25, recites for us the scope of his quest once again, he says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. That is, he wants to become thoroughly acquainted with foolishness so he can know the difference between it and true wisdom. It's the same thing he says back in chapter one, uh, but he's no closer to an answer. He says, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? We know what Solomon is talking about here. The total pattern is beyond us, but a pattern it is. We know that because we are created in the image of God. He has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's what he said back in chapter 2. So there is beauty and frustration. Life is full of puzzles. We know there's a certain order to this world, but we can't seem to grasp the whole of it. We want a total accounting of things, an approach that would explain all of life, but it eludes us. Yet again, there are individual findings. What did he find? Well, from the man who did not withhold from his eyes anything that he desired, 
He says he found the end result to be more bitter than death, worse than the pain of losing a loved one. And this is the fruit of sexual immorality. The book of Proverbs gives considerable space addressing this topic. Uh, if you've ever read those passage, passages, you'll immediately notice the similarity uh, in the language here. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. I don't think it's sexual sin alone that Solomon is speaking of, but the full spiritual impact of such unions. And he would know, wouldn't he? 700 wives, 300 concubines. You know, needless to say, he did not have a good track record with women. First Kings chapter 11 tells us what happened. It says his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Unless you think that Solomon is um, a passive, innocent participant in this uh, scenario, just listen to 1 Kings. makes it very clear. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Then it says Solomon clung to these in love. Solomon did not keep the commandment. It says, for Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Solomon is the sinner of verse 26. He is reporting his own wretched experience. So this is autobiographical. He is saying in his life, he never found a good woman. The theologian Derek Kidner writes, his fruitless search for a woman, he could trust. Ah, here we go. His fruitless search for a woman he could trust. May it tell us as much about him and his approach as about any of his acquaintances. The preacher was a king. He had almost unlimited power and wealth and wisdom. So as he presses into the world with all of its offers of experience, unhindered in a way that a common man would be, we can count on what wisdom he comes back with. He would know, right? He would know. Chapter 2, verse 12, For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So if you were to ask yourself, why should I flee sexual immorality? Well, because God in his word has furnished you with the testimony of one who has walked down that path and he's come back to warn you and he says it's more bitter than death. It promises to free you, but you will be enslaved. Your hands will be fettered. You will be caught in a snare. It's only a fool would plunge headlong into such a trap. Okay, so now we come to verse 28, that mind-bending sentence. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Boy, that, that sounds really bad. What are we dealing with here? Is this the worst kind of chauvinism imaginable? No. Again, he's not speaking universally, but experientially. He's not saying all women are seductive entrappers. Yes, some are. And young men, beware. But surely there's no reason to think that women ensnare men more than men ensnare women. 
or that there are more righteous men than righteous women in the world. Solomon is unable to figure out the vast majority of people he's encountered, whether men or women. Even his findings among men are pretty unimpressive. His point is that there is a scarcity of virtue in the world. And we have to remember that Solomon is a writer of wisdom literature. He writes with a provocative style. So this is a highly compressed statement delivered with a hyperbolic punch. And the punch is, especially because of verse 29, is that all of us are fallen. The pandemic of sin has infected all of us. Though we were all made upright, the entire race of humanity has sought out many schemes. Solomon is clearly pointing back to the very early chapters of Genesis. Here, remember, um, God's observation after creating man and woman, it says, behold, it was very good. Adam and Eve, they walked in perfect fellowship with God. Here was a relationship untainted by sin. God and man walked in perfect community and perfect contentment. But we know what happened. We know what happened. We chose to believe the devil's lie. And he said, he said you're, you're missing out. God's holding, he's holding out on you. There is a bit of wisdom that you know not of. I'm not deceiving you. God has. Remaining upright is naive. That was the lie. You need something more, he said. And so our ancient grandparents sought out another scheme beyond what God had given them. And the curse that fell on them fell on us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. So this is the fundamental conclusion that Solomon figured out. Though God made man upright, they have sought out many schemes. So the futility of this life is not God's fault. It's ours. As the Puritans would say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. But friends, praise God, there has come another man. A man who was faithful and upright, who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, a man who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, a man in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, a man who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, a man who is before all things and in him all things hold together. Surely there is a righteous man who stood on the earth and did good and never Send our Lord Jesus Christ has entered our fallen world. And by faith in him, fools can become wise and the fallen can stand upright again. 